Greetings, and welcome to Talking Trek to You, a podcast where a newbie and an expert boldly go through Star Trek episode by episode. My name is JG McCoy, and I'm here with my co-host, Kev Kozer. Say hi, Kev. Hi. How are you doing this week? Well, an ex-girlfriend stopped by and tried to drain me of all my salt, so that has me a little upset. I think that's probably quite understandable. That means this week we are going to be tackling the man trap, but we are not doing it alone, for we have a guest with us. Say hello, Dave. Hello, everyone. Thanks for having me on. You're more than welcome. How are you doing? Doing fine. Excellent. Brilliant. Well, um, just to sort of kick things off, almost every episode of this podcast, we will have somebody joining us for the discussion. And Dave, you are our first very first guest, actually, on the podcast since the first episode was just Kev and I together. So um, why don't you tell us a little bit about your history with the show? Where, where did your love of Star Trek come from? Uh, well, it started um, when I was probably about seven or eight. Uh, just that was when uh, Next Generation started. I think I started watching end of the first season, second season. So I even liked it before he grew the beard. Wow. Um, <laughs> And yeah, and then from there, I caught the uh, the odd episode of the original series. Um, it, in my in my day, growing up in the the late eighties, early nineties, it would be on sometimes on Sunday afternoons, so I could catch the occasional episode here and there. Um, and yeah, and I've just been especially um, really got into Deep Space Nine of of all the of all the series. That's my favorite, and I, but yeah, I try to keep, uh, I. Yeah, I've just uh, I keep I've been watching the new ones, really enjoying them. So uh, yeah, fantastic, good. Well, thank you very much. Um, it's always it's always good to hear um, other people enjoying the series, but it just reinforces how terribly old I am that you got to watch Next Generation <laughs> that young. Ah, oh, dear, never mind. I just have to live with the fact that I am just very old, but not quite as old as a near extinct species of salt vampire. So um, yeah, let's uh, let's get stuck into it. Kev, would you care to give us a summary? All right. Uh, yeah, the USS Enterprise arrives at a planet I'm seeing here, M113. They're basically performing a routine, routine su- supply drop and checkup of Professor Robert Crater and his wife, Nancy, who has a previous romantic history with uh, Dr. McCoy making his first appearance on the podcast of an episode we're discussing, at least. Yeah, they investigate uh, Kirk, McCoy, and oh, Crewman Darnell, our favorite characters we all around for many episodes, as we all are aware. <laughs> Uh, I'll see Nancy a different different woman, and then Darnell tragically unexpectedly dies as they try to diagnose what killed him. We just more deaths happen with weird sucker like things appearing on people's faces. It eventually becomes apparent that quote unquote Nancy is a some form of shapeshifter who is trying to seek salt. She shapeshifts as one of the dead crew members, gets about aboard the Enterprise, uh, kills a little more. And then as, as Kirk and the rest of the people slowly figure out what's going on, she takes the form of McCoy as he is sedated. But that is not enough to throw them off the trail. They are eventually able to uncover, let's call her Nancy's ruse. And eventually McCoy has to shoot her while she's in the form of Nancy, uh, thus sort of ending the threat of this salt vampire. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Well, Dave, you're our guest this week, so um, let's let's kick off with your good self. Um, how did you find this episode? Yeah, overall, I found it overall, I found it quite good. I think um, it was certainly a great character moments for Spock and McCoy and uh, and Kirk. I think as uh, as a sort of uh, accidental pilot, I think it works. It's a great introduction uh, to both uh, the characters and the series. What it what it is. 
And um, yeah, I don't think everything worked. Um, I, th- I, I wasn't a huge fan of the, the Buffalo metaphor, but uh, yeah. And, but, and the, uh, the monster never felt um, as a monster story. It was, yeah. Yeah. It, and I don't think it was ever really, it, uh, sorry. It was never really meant to be a, a monster story per se. So, uh, but yeah. Yeah. I think I was thinking about as a monster story, like the monster is almost less interesting the shape-shifting aspect is the most interesting part about it. Like, draining salt and stalking people, like, that's all it's, I mean, it's very Doctor Who. It's very a lot of other things. It's very by the book. But I think the shape-shifting aspect to this creature just gives it a lot of more room for, like, tension and narrative drive and just so many really great patient scenes of seeing the different actors playing the monster, sort of stalking people around. Uh, yeah, I mean... I agree when it just really just comes down to like a uh, big thing with tentacle suckers reaching out at someone. It's a little whatever, but the uh, there's I think there's a lot of great horror around just sort of playing with a shape shifting villain. Yeah, I think one I think one of the things that works incredibly well in this is is the direction, and and some of that is is just the, the very kind of small details. It's like like the way that um, like the the whoever is the vampire kind of like bites their finger. Or choosing their mm-hmm. finger as as a method of indicating to the audience, you know, who it is we're supposed to be keeping an eye on. I mean, it's a very simple technique, but it works really well. It's it, it's surprisingly effective at establishing, uh, you know, exactly which character is which. And like that that uh, that scene in the briefing room where the creature is McCoy, mm-hmm. and 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 DeForest Kelly is doing it, and DeForest Kelly does such a good job of kind of playing McCoy as off and, and being the creature. And it's just like little details like that really kind of make the direction come alive. We're going to have a whole DeForest Kelly corner. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> because as mentioned, this is the first time we're talking about an episode with him in it. But um, I, I, I guess I want to get to the creature performances first, since we're on that topic. Uh, it definitely, I mean, it definitely is almost a litmus test for different actors performing different abilities. Uh, obviously, as I said, Kelly is fantastic. Uh, Jean, Jean Ball, who we see mostly as the creature, I think she's giving a fantastic performance as well. And then you have, uh, what's the name? Bruce Watson is green. Who It's not bad, but you definitely see the gap when he his version of playing the creature is just stock still, staring into the middle distance, following around. It's effective for what it is, but there's layers to the other major shape-shifting performances. Um, I guess the fourth one to mention is Vince Howard as the uh, crewman who flirts with Uhura, who I, th- I would, I guess, rank third in this ranking. I'm sort of going with on the fly. <laughs> uh, also very effective, but you can definitely tell the main credited cast member in the star guest spot are getting the lion's share of the performance out of here. Yeah, absolutely. Because, um, uh, I mean, DeForest Kelly is the only one who kind of has to spend any meaningful time with the two characters i mean we right i think what the um you know the crewman you know we first see he's not really enough of a character uh before nancy kills him and steal and takes his form for us to really get a sense of who he is and for him to really get a sense beyond just generic guy generic star trek guy in yellow shirt one of the most remarkable things about this episode is that all the red shirts aren't wearing red shirts. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're, they're all in blue or yellow. <laughs> it was just pleasingly subver- subverting my expectations there. But I was very happy with that. I just say worth mentioning though. I think I can't remember anyone beyond our like main credited cast members dying. I guess there was the supposed uh, the fake helmsman in the where no man has gone before. But I've, these are like classical red shirt red shirts. They beam down to the planet. They're instantly taken by assault vampire. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the first one's dead before the opening title sequence. So yeah, absolutely classic red shirt <laughs> yeah. behavior. Right, and uh, just worth worth noting that I mean, I unless I'm forgetting something, and for where no man has gone before, all the characters you died or at least had some significant screen time with. This is our first, uh, our first inspirations for the John Scalzi novel. <laughs> decades later, the term itself is even if they're not wearing actual red shirts, as you point out. Uh, I guess I'm going to get used to this cliche. I'm afraid so. <laughs> All right, but uh, to your point, JG. Um, yeah. What was my point? Um, oh, sorry. It's <laughs> quite all right. Um, no, no. What I was going to say was, um, I, I, I quite like the fact that even though we do have like, like real classic red shirts, it's, it's early enough in the show um, that it does actually manage to establish uh, like a level of threat to the regular crew without it just being like, oh, well, how will they get out of this one kind of series? Uh, you know, like um, like corny sort of 1930s sort of serials. There is a sense, I think particularly once the vampire gets onto the ship, that there is a, like, there's a genuine sort of feeling of threat. Again, I think some of that does come from the direction, which I think is generally sort of very well handled. But the script kind of parcels out its, its kind of near misses very well as well. The whole the whole seen in the um, alleged botany lab with uh, Rand and Sulu, um, you know, all that kind of stuff. Or, or lest we forget the glove puppet uh, flower, uh, which is just a classic of its era. I, I, I love a puppet, which mm. is just a guy shoving his hand through the table. What, 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 could, be make, what could make me happier? Um, but it's just you know all those all those little moments. Uh, they just they all add up. The, 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 that's that long, patient build up of fear rather than just constantly going for a body count really does the episode a lot of favor. I definitely want to do a section on the sort of like tangential scenes like Uhura flirting with Spock and uh, Rand and uh, Sulu just having their pleasant conversation about plants because that's just so much texture. But uh, just speaking of the creature and the tension specifically and, and the use of red shirts, I yeah, there's a couple people who are just randomly dead with no lines <laughs> and oh, oh, sorry, oh no. But I do think there is impact to the death of um, Green, where it's used to convey that I love the, you see the body of Green tilt up, you see Green standing there. A technique they use later with um, with the Forrest Kelly in the bed. It might have been a cut actually for the body of Green to the imposter of Green. But I definitely remember and wrote it down in my notes that the, the pan from DeForest Kelly sleeping to the creature just standing there as DeForest Kelly for the 60s, that's just, I mean, it's just great. Was it a mannequin? Did DeForest Kelly run up and run behind the camera? <laughs> Is there an invisible cut there? Either way, I love it. It's impressive. I can answer that question if you want. If you want, go to, ahead. Yeah, please. It, it's a cut. So there's, there's a moment okay. where it pans around and it gets to the wall. And if you watch it really, really closely, you can see that there's a slight cut there. It's just as it hits the white wall. And obviously that creates an edit point and then it carries yeah. on. Right. But I completely agree. Like for 1966, 1967, that's really impressive. Absolutely. And it's the kind of thing that it's so effective because you don't even, I didn't even think to question it and and note it. That's this, to me, that's always the sign of good, uh, of good direction. If I'm not thinking about the direction. 
Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's, it's just like we're talking about with the turbo lift in When No Man Has Gone Before, where it's like you see them enter and exit on different floors done by rearranging the stage. It's like, it's stage magic. It's just that kind of craft of directing that when you have a shoestring budget as this show clearly has and the not no CGI, just the effects of the time, you do what what's intelligent. You do what's smart and to create these sort of really impressive tricks. I will say, well, actually, I'll say, I'll say two things there. Uh, one, I think it is worth bearing in mind that although although the original show does get um, ripped for the fact that it looks cheap, Star Trek wasn't a cheap show. Oh. I mean, because, you know, everything had to be built from scratch, like all of the Fair. bridge sets, all of the medical bay, the car. Like, if you're just doing like another police procedural, if you're doing Gunsmoke or Bonanza, some like Western or whatever, like all those standing sets all exist, all the rest of it, they could be knocked out extremely cheaply. But to put a series together like Star Trek, especially a series in color, uh, in 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 the mid sixties, it it was not an inexpensive production. If you compare it to Doctor Who at the time, I mean that was an, that was that was a yeah, really <laughs> that was a really cheap production, and and the, the the differences are really visible. So honestly, I mean, I mean, you're right. Of course, that it, it is the craft. It is it is it is stage magic. I think it's incredibly effectively realized. But I do just want to kind of put in a word to say, yeah, of course, it looks a bit ropey. And there's a couple of shots in in this episode where you can really hear the doors rattling. The sound effects is not covering the prop guys pushing the doors open and closed. But it wasn't. It really wasn't that that cheap of a show. However, it looks now. And just one other thing that I want to mention before we kind of move on from the whole red shirt discussion. Um, I love the way that William Shatner reacts to the death of Green. He is furious, uh, especially that scene in Sickbay when uh, when he's talking to McCoy and McCoy's getting a bit kind of misty-eyed and Kirk kind of pulls him back and says, no, no, I've lost the man. Pull your head out your ass and let's get this, let's figure out what's going on here. It's a great performance from Shatner. And he really... I mean, he really hits the point, but it, 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 it makes that, I think that's one of the reasons the red shirt deaths in this are so effective, even though there's only a couple. It's because of the way uh, Kirk reacts to them. He's livid at the idea of his, his, his crew, his men being killed for nothing, for no reason that he can that he can figure out. And that reaction, that, that anger, and it really puts weight on the death. When we, when the show goes on and we get, we really get into proper red shirt territory that that will fall away and they will just be disposable bodies who help to kind of up the drama quotient. But the fact that this episode actually takes the time to have scenes where we see characters reacting to the death of someone, you know, even if it is just a red shirt, but the fact that it takes the time to be able to do that really helps to reinforce kind of the drama of, of that death. I think it's a very, very effective technique. Yeah. Uh, maybe yeah. Kirk's reacting because they are not red shirts, they're yellow and blue shirts, and he's those are more important. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, but but no, but we can see Kirk really doesn't want to be a space cop, but he's just forced into it because he's lost a man and he is angry about it. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think that's a good transition to talking about Kirk in this episode. Uh, I mean, another great Shatner performance. I think even if he is sort of more on the sidelines of the emotional content of this episode. The way, just the way he, command suits him, let's say, is so <laughs> evident. Uh, I love the scene where he is, uh, like, in the briefing room, and he's, like, sort of going over how can we trap the creature. And there is that, like you said, that fury and that passion behind it that comes so through. And also, he's got a, 
and there's almost I guess for plot reasons it doesn't make sense if he did figure out that DeFor that DeForest Kelly was playing uh the shapeshifter at that time. But there is almost like the suspicion I think is still there in his voice. And just this like caution as well. I don't know, it's there's a lot of scenes like that where he is giving orders and not in just a very rote militaristic way, but in a very compassionate way and the way that his emotions are fully bleeding through. Absolutely. And I think um and one thing I thought this really did, this episode really sort of showed Kirk as sort of halfway between the like the very emotional dynamic of uh McCoy and the very logic uh extreme of Spock and Kirk is right in the middle. Um he's you know he's pragmatic when he needs to be and he's you know uh, uh, but he's an emotional at the same time and Kirk really uh and Shatner I should say really brings those two emotions together uh in a really effective way I I completely agree and I think I mean what's kind of impressive about Shatner in in this episode is that he does have quite a wide range of of um stuff that he has to do I think one of the things that people tend to underestimate the original show for and like you guys are coming to at, at sort of different periods of time so please feel free to correct me if i'm uh, if, if i'm not writing this but um i i think one of the things that the show gets very undervalued for is just how good it is at showing kind of the um the integration of the crew this is the first episode this is only the second episode we've covered in the podcast it's the first one um that DeForest Kelly is in but that scene early on in the episode um where Kirk finds out that Nancy's um pet name for him was Peach and they have they have like a little uh rapport thing going on a little funny thing and then uh, um a bit later on uh Kirk calls McCoy Peach and then immediately goes oh that's like Dr. McCoy and it's just that that kind of camaraderie that kind of rapport that these characters have it's just absolutely in, uh, instant and again like we'll talk about the De deforest kelly in a wee bit but like shatner plays that scene really well he's funny and it's not it's not a inverted commas shatner performance he's just he just he just plays the comedy of it very well and that instant rapport that instant camaraderie the feeling that these are characters who have known each other who've worked together who have served on the line together for for months and years just it's just instantly there in a way that i'm not sure any other iteration of star trek quite captures as quickly i don't mean that as a criticism of any of the others i mean some of them go with the whole point of uh, say uh, the first couple of seasons of uh, next generation is that it is a brand new crew they do learn to come together and and you know they have that journey um but just like basically with a click of a finger the instant sort of rapport that this crew have together is one of this episodes and one of the series' um, strongest points. It's just immediate and it, it makes everything that happens believable because these are people who care about each other. And I mean, the similar moment I want to shout out with uh, Kirk and McCoy's interactions that I also noted because it's, this is the first time audiences are uh, seeing McCoy and the first, the, not the first time seeing McCoy because I've also watched the original series movies, but uh, the first impression of him is Kirk realizing that they're seeing an old girlfriend of McCoy's uh, handing him a little straw that he picks up as flowers <laughs> and McCoy responding, 
Is that how you get women to like you? You bribe them and just <laughs> a really good own, first of all. But also, yeah, that's just the rapport they have. That is the, yes, everything you need to know about their relationship in two lines. Like almost the first two lines spoken in the episode is uh, gently teasing each other. And one's a little more romantic and uh, flighty even as the captain the other is a little more brusque and uh salty and that is no <laughs> pun intended and yeah it's it's just perfect it's an absolutely perfect introduction agreed 100 percent. we've covered kirk uh, i think we should talk about spock in this episode as well not again not as central of a role but uh, another great showing for leonard nimoy as always is i yeah, love and... the scene where he's talking to her yes but and he seems and it's it's hard to tell from Nimoy's performance whether he's trying to convey that Spock is confused or uh, just sort of annoyed or or uncomfortable. Like it's because it's we don't see what what you call emotion per se, but you know he's sort of he's got his head down, he's sort of wiping his forehead um, while she's you know asking him about uh, you know the moons of Vulcan and everything else and. Uh, he, we see him tug his collar just a little tiny bit. And so it's it's obvious he's like he's uncomfortable or or just confused by the entire interaction and just wishes it would stop. Yeah, it's it's a great trying to hide emotion but still letting it seep through kind of moment. And then yeah, I mean that, that's not exciting, but then there's also that slight later moment where she says there's people dead on the planet and how can you not react to that? And like it's just it's such a good little beat of I mean reminding audiences or telling audiences for the first time in the 1960s this guy is an alien he's not going to act the way we do he's not going to fret if Captain Kirk's alive or not even though he's the closest thing you have to a friend which is ah such a great line and the Shell Nichols is also just great in that scene as well I we know. have to we have to call her out as well um, I was. Uh doing a little bit of writing earlier on today as it happens about uh, the uh, the new iteration of um, Star Trek Strange New Worlds at new time of recording anyway um, and just watching that and then sort of watching uh, Michelle Nichols back to back with it it's just like she is so good at doing so much with so little and you know like she has and this has, I don't mean that to be uh, sort of uh, demeaning towards her in in this uh in this episode, she gets some good meaty um, moments and she's got some, some nice interactions. I love her interactions with Spock. I really like her interaction with the salt vampire in, in the, in the corridor. I think she does a really good job uh, in what could, I think could be quite a cringy scene if it wasn't played by an actor as good as Michelle McCall's. Um, but you know, as, as time wears on, and I'm sure this is not a spoiler as time wears on, she's going to get less and less to do, but it's just when you watch episodes like this, that that hurts because she's so good at landing these moments. And even that, that moment where she, she, she questions Spock and says, you know, he's the closest thing you have to a friend. Like that could come across as kind of hacky and a bit sort of, um, I mean, obviously it's meant to have a degree of prejudice in it as well, but the way that she sells the line gives it the resonance. It, it's the delivery, I think on that line that, that makes it work. Um, and she's just, great the way that she she pauses when she hears hears about over the calm that there's been a death and she just stops dead and then she turns back and it's a it's just those tiny little moments just make you cry out for her to be able to have that kind of quality uh that much screen time really uh you know as as the series is going to go on 
Yeah, and she is like fantastic. I mean, I it's instantly apparent how she became like an iconic character just from the couple scenes she has in this episode. Uh, I love the scene where she's also flirting with the shape-shifting alien, obviously not knowing it's a shapeshifter, and I'm trying to find where on Memory Alpha the translation of what they said was, but uh, yes, I just want to point out, I just want to share a fun fact. The illusory crewman says in English, how are you, friend? I think of you, beautiful lady. You should never know loneliness. Probably a garbled translation, but uh, I just I just find that just tickles me, the, that, the forwardness of it all. Um, and yet she's like conveying those emotions of, oh, who is this hot guy in front of me? I, I think, yeah, I mean, there's something to be said about a little bit of, uh, for 19, I'm no expert in 1960s TV. I could be speaking out of turn. It feels a little liberated the way they're very openly like, these are hot people that these other characters are attracted to, not just men, but women too. And Kirk straight up calling out that the scientist on the planet was using the shapeshifter as a lover. Just, I mean, that was just sort of a startling moment for me. Yeah, absolutely. That was, um, yeah, because when you stop to think of it, yeah, we're, that we're the real, you know, in many ways, the real villain of the, the episode isn't isn't Nancy. It was Doctor Crater. Uh, even though that even though the uh, the the climax of the episode is is you know is McCoy killing her, uh, it's really Crater's the one responsible in many ways. Right. I mean, it's it's a very tragic ending in many ways because it's a the creature's acting on instinct. It's not a deliberate sabotage of the Enterprise. It's just this is what I have to do. Um, I, I do want to talk more about that, actually. But JG, any more thoughts on uh, sexual liberation in Star Trek? <laughs> um, I mean, only only to sort of kind of agree with what you're saying, which is that that that's pretty progressive for 1966, 1967. You know, that's that's a, a, there's a genuine sense of that, and the fact that we get um, like this hot couple flirting with each other, and they're both African American. It's that's really genuinely progressive. We're going to have a lot of conversations as this podcast um, goes on um, about progressiveness in Star Trek, because it's not, you know, obviously the original show is held up as being this kind of this sort of beacon of enlightenment. I think we can tell from some of the sexual politics, not least the title of this episode, yeah. that is not a universal stance. And there will be times when this show falls far, far, far short of its kind of liberated uh, reputation. But just having that there, just having like two African-American characters who are on screen flirting with each other, um, you know, that's that's genuinely progressive for that period of time and and that is it is something to be to be praised it is something to be called out for there are a lot of um sexual politics in this which are uh of uh less developed uh, like particularly that scene of the crewmen all looking at yeoman rand as she walks past and yeah. <laughs> the uh, the whole um the oh i wouldn't wouldn't mind having her as my private yeoman kind of oh, oh god yeah it was definitely made in the 60s you know it's only lacking a sort of to be you know <laughs> for the effect to be complete but it's you know you know it, there will be times when we'll have to call the show out for falling way short of what we would hope a progressive television show in the 60s would be but yeah we have an african-american couple here who are hot and young and into each other and that is properly progressive yeah, yeah and it, it, 
you you mentioned the title of the episode. It may be worth mentioning that uh, that it was quite possible that was not the original title of the episode because I know the um, the the adaptation um, the short story adaptation that James Blish did uh, in the early seventies. He he did all these Star Trek adaptations that were based on the original scripts, and it was called uh, the story there was called McCoy's Big Day. <laughs> so, so it's quite possible that that was the original title of the uh, in the script, and they uh, changed it to the Man Trap. You know, yeah. someone uh, thought that was clever. What, what I'm seeing here is the original title, like on Memory Alpha, a website that seems very vetted, though. Someone can correct me here. Right? The original title is "Damsel with a Dulcimer," which oh God, that, is, uh, that is worse. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, at least a little more fanciful than McCoy's Big Day, but definitely uh, not better in terms of progressiveness. Um, but yeah, it's yeah, it's. I mean, the arc of social progress in media—it's never going to be straightforward. But yeah, I think there are just like moments of. Oh, they're acknowledging sex on television in this futuristic science fiction way, but also in a way that still is relevant and progressive for the 1960s. It's it's just all, yeah. It's it can still surprise me even as it disappoints me, which I think is makes it for a fascinating object of its time. If there's no other thoughts directly off of that, I think we could just talk Yeoman and Rand and Sulu in that scene really quick. Yeah, I, I this is yeah first introduction to Yeoman Rand, who I understand is around for about half of this first season. Yeah, something like that. She doesn't. She doesn't last very long, and her her exit from the show is is not good. I um, read about that. Yeah, I get into that now. No, but... no, we'll, we'll we'll get into that in a future episode. Um, okay. But what? Okay, that's that. Then let me pose the question to both of you. Um, uh, maybe start with you, Dave. Um, what did you think of Yogan Rand? Yeah, I thought she was, yeah, you know, a promising character. I was kind of. Uh... I was thinking, you know, I enjoyed her interactions with Sulu and just the, uh, I was, I thought because she'd had a very different, um, you know, there was, there seemed a bit of a silliness to her, the way she sort of takes nibbles from uh, Sulu's plate before she gives them to him. Uh, You know, of course, the way she insists that uh, Gertrude is Beauregard. Um, And I was... I, I really enjoyed that moment, uh, just her and Sulu just sort of joking around for five minutes. And I find myself, you know, and, and reading that I was like, oh, they I thought they had, you know, promise as a, as a duo, I guess I could say. So I was a little disappointed to see that that's literally the only see- scene they have together in the original series. Yeah, that is disappointing because, I mean, I guess I had to really love that scene. I agree with you, JG. Anyone who's any puppet that's just a guy sticking a hand through a hole in the table. That's, that's just art to me. I love that. And just, it's just such a nice little breather from a couple scenes of this guy creepily stalking her around to just like, I mean, yeah, she is, she's a skirt who these men are all uh, ogling or whatever you want to say it. But she's more than that. She's like, Immediately, we're getting her personality from her. She's like a fun, inquisitive person. She has a rapport with Sulu. And it really does a lot to sort of deepen that character with just a couple scenes. I, yeah, I, her, uh, her like talking to the plant and like sort of fraternizing, that's where like, fraternizing with the plant is, um, uh, was just very fun. It's a cute moment. And then 
it gets, like, again, that breather from the tension until the guy comes back in the room. It's so nice just to have those little character moments that flesh out the script. And like you were saying earlier, I think, Dave, making it more than just some anthology show with, like, they fight a monster every week. It's it's a character drama, first and foremost. Yeah, you say, you, say, um, you know, I, you know, Rand is the, the bit of skirt that all the guys just want. Um, not all the guys. Tellingly, Sulu does not flirt with her yeah. at all. Now, you want, you can make of that what you will, but it's, it's, I genuinely, um, I, I, I've never, I haven't seen this episode in, oh, I don't know, probably 20, 25 years, certainly long before um, I knew George Takai was gay and long, long before Sulu was uh, gay. Um, so it's kind of, but it, re-watching it now, it's kind of interesting. Sulu doesn't flirt with her, whereas all the other guys are, are yeah, doing the kind of typical, you know, kind of uh, like Looney Tunes, like eyes out and stalks kind of thing, you know. Um, it's 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 just a curious little note, but it is, I mean, I, of course, I agree with both of you. It's a lovely little scene. Everybody gets a little character beat. And what I like about it is that overall, other than the plant reacting to the salt vampire when it comes in, the scene doesn't actually achieve anything in terms of the plot it never comes back that the plant reacts to the vampire it, it you know it's not like the way that they used to find it or something or detect it it's just it, that all that like two or three minute scene is is character building and that's great that's just such a great little thing and like like you said kevin it, it's a little breather it helps the the tension to kind of come back uh, to to sorry uh, to to, uh, to be released and then it will come back as as the as the story carries on it's it's such a it's such a fascinating little moment to have in an episode like this yeah i think then we can maybe pull out of that tangent and i we can discuss uh, the man of the hour deforest kelly as a uh, mccoy i really want to get into him he's so I mean, we mentioned how good he is as the shapeshifter. He's so good in the sort of double role he's cast in here. Especially, again, if this is my, like my first real impression of him on the show proper, audiences around the country, their first impression of him. Uh, it's just such a fun character where, like, he, you're right, he is the more emotional side of that trio. But still having those scenes where he is like trying to keep those emotions in check when he's seeing Nancy again, and and maybe like gushing a little bit too much when she's just off screen, but it's just yeah, he it, it really he really brings it. He really brings that very specific emotion of reconnecting with someone and still having that torch for them, and then having that complicated by the fact that she's uh, running around killing people. There will there will almost never be a performance. Uh, so this is spoilers. Uh, there will always never be a performance from DeForest Kelly that I won't end up praising. I think he's just such a... I mean, it's pointless to say that he's a key element because that's, you know, that's self-evidently the case. Uh, but I think also particularly if you come... Again, both of you, feel free to correct me if, if I'm wrong on this. But if you come to Star Trek from having seen maybe the movies first rather than being familiar with the TV show... McCoy is mostly pretty sidelined in the movie. He gets a few moments in Star Trek V. He gets his big scene about euthanizing his, uh, euthanizing his father. Um, you know, there's a few other bits and pieces that he gets to do, but mostly those movies are about Kirk and Spock. He's, he's very much the sort of the subordinate of the three as, as far as uh, screen time and as far as character focus goes. 
But then you get you come back to the the, the the original show and you watch an episode like this. And again, our first exposure to him, uh, like you were saying, David, you know, functionally a pilot. And he is just great. Every single second he is on screen, he occupies the screen. He is he is funny and charming. He can be vicious. He can be a bit bitter. He can be all this stuff, all just wrapped up into one. But but mostly he's just incredibly likable. He just radiates like. And if you if you have especially, I mean you, you know, classic triumvirate of you know Ed Ego and Super Ego between Kirk Spock and McCoy. But you know he plays his part of that very very well indeed. And that that balancing act is so crucial to um you know to why these characters are sort of the i hate the word iconic but i can't really think of a synonym for it at the moment so okay i'm just gonna have to go with that and why they're such an iconic uh you know trio and no i mean not just in science fiction but in, in popular culture in in general and it's really refreshing especially for you know myself who's, who's been at this for a very long time as far as star trek is concerned to come back and, and sort of basically be reminded how significant he is. You know, Spock is great in this episode. Leonard Nimoy is great in this episode, of course. And we've talked about Shatner already. But Macaulay occupies such a central position in this episode. And I think it is easy to forget just what a gifted performer DeForest Kelly is. But when you come to an episode like this, you really you get that sense of it. Yeah, I mean, I've been technically pointing out that, uh, yes, I've seen the movies before and I may have, I, I definitely watched Space Seed decade plus ago and half remember it so it's not just just a way to being covering my base and saying this is not the first time i've seen deforest kelly and mccoy but that said it really does feel like the first time i've seen deforest <laughs> kelly play mccoy uh, it's you say like you said he's sort of back in those movies where here he is front and center and the performance is extraordinary he is just he is that perfect balance to kirk with that long friendship and he doesn't get much time with Spock here, but like I can definitely see how those three would fit together. It's just such a such a great dynamic, and I I love to go back to the, sort of the tragedy at the end of it, where this creature is just acting on instinct, and it's sort of reigniting these feelings he had for this woman lost. And I love that we get to the illusion is broken. He sees it as a creature. He shoots it. It, the creature could have died there, and that would have been a fine ending. I think it's so crucial that the creature transforms back into Nancy one last time, and McCoy has to shoot her as Nancy. Like that is so. Like the it's that's the full statement right there. That's the button on the entire character arc, and I don't think the episode fully works without that. I think it's such a good resolution to this honestly subtle arc of getting over this past flame i mean it shoves it in your face oh these two used to have a connection over and over again but the the act of him letting it go no one ever stops him at the end and say well it looks like you've gotten over those romantic feelings from your past <laughs> it's just yeah it's just a little it's just a nice little arc for him yeah, what and you know, I guess maybe this ties back into our earlier discussion about sexual liberation. But in the beginning, there's just there's no jealousy, there's no sort of bitterness right. uh, in the reunion. Like cer certainly, Crater doesn't seem jealous of uh, McCoy, but obviously, uh, given that we know that uh, that Nancy is not McCoy's Nancy, 
that's a little understandable, but you know, uh, yeah, like he, he, there's just no bitterness in him. It's just like, oh, it's just nice to see you again. And it's it's it would be wonderful if um, you know they could be something again. And uh, and so I think the um, the obviously the the sleeping pills. Um, don't tell this, but you know, I think the they had that moment in the quarters in the quarters together before uh, you know before McCoy takes the sleeping pills and and Nancy becomes him, where it's really just seems like yeah he would just start it all again, and it's I, I think maybe at the end it's that where the reason he's able to shoot her is even though she looks like Nancy, I think it's only because he's able to accept that she's not right. For sure. Back to sort of the jealousy thing, though. I, I do think that is such a good moment. Like, it's a very adult moment to not bring the extra potential drama out of there. I I'll almost feel like a more... I, I don't even want to say lesser show, but I think you know the kind of show I'm thinking of where it would just, like, crank up that as well. It's like, ah, she's with another man now. I'm so tortured about this. And the other guy is, like, even if she's super alien, like, territorial about her in some way. It's is you know that sort of for lack of a better term there would be some dick measuring between mccoy and professor crater dr crater rather but no it's just it's a very adult nuanced quiet way of dealing with these sort of feelings that are gone all complicated by the twist of the story of course but i don't know it just it's just nice that they didn't need to go to that well it is just a very I mean, it's how an adult would react <laughs> to be blunt about it. It's it feels much more nuanced this way. Yeah, and I think they do a good job. I think of giving enough tension between Crater and uh, the right. Starfleet crew at the very beginning. Just he doesn't like, um, you know. Whereas Crater at least is presenting himself as someone who just oh hates to be bothered with all this regulation nonsense and whatever strange military organization you belong to, Kirk. That he just like does not acknowledge, uh, and whether that's a, a function of the show not quite having its world building set in place yet, or whether that's uh, or whether that was sort of the character of Crater being dismissive of this whole idea of Starfleet of this, um, oh yeah, the Starfleet thinks they own the freaking galaxy. Well, this <laughs> is my planet, and again, that dynamic sets up all the tension we need. We don't need that romantic jealousy. Oh, no, I, Kev, you said like a, a lesser show, um, but I think like yeah, if this was a like a, a sort of bog standard detective show or whatever, and there's that weird moment where Kirk gets a couple of lines where he really you get the impression he's being written slightly as as a gumshoe, like you get that that thing about um, you know mysteries give me a, a bellyache and I've got a stomach full of it or whatever I forget the exact line, but whatever that was, and he's kind of being written like he's a character in the streets of San Francisco or one of those kind of like um, you know like mid sixties sort of you know cop shows or, or detective dramas or whatever, and and one of those shows. Absolutely. You would have the dame that was inspiring jealousy between the two captains or the two, uh, you know, uh, sergeants in the force or whatever it was, you know, um, that's absolutely how it would be played. And yeah, I mean, it is, you know, it, it's very much a case of, of less is more. The series seems more grown up 
for not going for the the, the big emotions and you know the, the, those kind of dramas at the time yeah you, you fugitives and streets of san francisco and all those kind they would have really leaned hard on that but again it's also one of the things that makes mccoy seem like a an older character i mean obviously deforest kelly is is a, a fair bit older than than the rest of the cast but it also makes in this case it makes him seem also more mature because he's not leaning into that and we'll have plenty of opportunities to discuss kirk's jealousy and all that kind of stuff going forward plenty of opportunities but in this particular case mccoy looks like more of a grown-up just because he has that strength i think i mean deforest kelly a man in his 40s and him talking about her not looking a day over 25 i think that just hammers in you do the math and it hammers in how long ago this relationship has been. Um, it really is just such a moment from his past that and I think laying that timetable out without explicitly pointing it out, I think is just such another like great subtle move by this script. I think one of the other things I really want to call out in terms of this script is that um, it, it is, I mean, it really it does feel like a, a, a grown up script. I think it feels remarkably sort of modern and contemporary. I think it would take almost no adjustment at all to be able to do this story. Okay, you would need to tweak the sexual uh, chemistry. The chemistry? That's not the right word at all. You need to say politics is the word I'm looking for. You would need to tweak the sexual politics a bit. But beyond that, it stands a surprisingly kind of contemporary piece of drama. And one of the things I love about this story is the fact that Nancy is the last of her kind because it does lend itself to the the tragedy of it. Now, I know, Dave, you were saying that you're not a big fan of the the Buffalo metaphor, and I'll I'll ask you about that in a minute. But um, I do really enjoy the fact, enjoy is maybe not quite the right word, but I really appreciate the fact that um, there's, there's some irony to the fact that in order to be able to defeat this uh, enemy that they have, this monster, they have to also end a species and it 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 really it stops the episode it can never become like uh, we, i think again dave you were saying earlier on it, it it can't become a pure monster story because there's too much tragedy around the death of the last of of of, of this uh, species kind we don't find out why that this is the last of their kind it doesn't need a space plague or an ion storm or some other thing, you know, for them to be wiped out. That isn't really the point, but it, it means that there's, there can't be any sense of triumphalism. The only thing there is at the end is the tragedy of the situation, the tragedy of somebody who died a year ago, um, you know, because this creature needed salt to survive the tragedy uh, of the doctor, um, you know, still, you know, desperately hoping that he'll be able to rekindle some kind of um, relationship with somebody who's already been sort of long dead. Uh, All this kind of tragedy builds up towards the end of the episode. And it's, it's, I I don't know. I, I, I find it almost quite moving that, that that's, that's what it goes for. It, it didn't need to have that extra layer. She didn't need to be the last of her kind. She just needed, if she'd just been, one creature that was on that island or that continent or something, and there were other ones in the but that would have been fine. That would have been more than enough. It still would have been a terrific episode. But you have this this tragedy, yeah, that that she's the last of her kind. So it's not when when McCoy is McCoy, a doctor no less, is forced to kill 
you know, a creature that is, is the last of their kind, it puts so much kind of extra weight on his actions, but not weight that the episode can't bear. The episodes can absolutely carry the weight of that tragedy. I think it's incredibly effective. Yeah, no, I, I agree that definitely the the last of a kind aspect does uh, add a lot of add a lot of great weight to it. So, so why don't you think the buffalo metaphor works then? Well, I guess my problem is the, I mean, they sort of heavily imply that, you know, that the reason that Nancy is the last of her kind is because her species essentially ate all the salt on the planet and starved itself into oblivion, and that's really mm. not the case of the buffalo. Um, you know, if they had used, because you know, the buffalo. You know, the buffalo went extinct because, well, they didn't even go extinct. They haven't gone extinct. They've sincerely depleted, um, you know, because of, you know, white settlers trying to commit genocide against Native Americans. And I don't think that, uh, you know, that Roddenberry or whoever wrote the script was trying to uh, imply that Nancy's people were the victim of a genocide. So I guess that's that's my problem with the buffalo metaphor. It's... It works only on sort of the surface terms of a majestic creature we don't want to see eliminated from from all time. But yeah, I definitely agree with you that um, it's yeah that that was from outside intervention of humans, whereas this is a self inflicted uh, extinction. And yeah, that does read much differently. I I can see why it wouldn't land for you as much, even though I do I do think it's a neat trick of writing to just lay the buffalo metaphor out uh, two-thirds within the episode, and then just have Kirk put the button on it at the end. Just a, just a nice, again, like just a subtle, powerful moment from him. It's another good line reading from Shatner mm-hmm. as well. The way that he says, I was just thinking about the buffalo, and just kind of leaves it at that. Um, I, I mean, I, I, I think that's perfectly reasonable criticism of the metaphor, Dave. I, I, I sort of agree with you. Um, but I do like Shatner's line reading on the final... Yeah the final moment he, he he has that melancholia in the way that he um he delivers it and it, it it makes it resonant even even if the metaphor isn't the strongest one the show could necessarily have gone for he's able to sell the line absolutely and what what i do is he um i mean there, there is a sense of uh sort of a a tiny smile from shatner at it and mm. um just the way he no, because originally I, I uh, before rewatching the episode, I went and read the short story version, and um, you know, it, and of course it it ends with the same line. I was just thinking about the buffalo, and Shatler's Shatner's line reading there, I think more than any other line in the episode, was just completely different uh, from what he put on the screen than what was on the page, and I think that's that's his real brilliance is he wasn't. Is he didn't just make it completely morose. It wasn't just, oh, I was thinking about the buffalo, <laughs> and he doesn't like stare stare straight ahead, somberly. Um, you know, he has that little sort of, oh, I was just thinking about the buffalo, and there, there's a lightness to it. I think that was uh, that even though it's a tragedy, it still works. Yeah, it, I don't think that that lightness doesn't lessen the tragedy, which is just somehow which i don't even know how to explain <laughs> uh yeah it's i mean it just works so well as a moment because he needs to sort of convey the weight of everything they came across and then immediately after be 
warp one, time to go to our next destination. <laughs> Apparently delivering chili peppers to uh, Jose Dominguez, was it said? <laughs> Who apparently just needs them for his kitchen. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, the fact, I just love that moment. Just the fact that he is, like, absorbing the tragedy that just happened over the last day. And it's just all in the life of a Starfleet captain. We have to move on. I, I mean that that's like to again reiterate the balance between McCoy and Spock of emotion and logic all in that one little moment at the end of the episode. It's it's perfect. Yeah, if there's nothing else off of that, I just wanted to say the writer of the story, we've been referencing George Clayton Johnson, of course, uh taking input it seems from Gene Roddenberry and uh, John D. F. Black, who was the story editor. But George Clayton Johnson wrote this, his only Star Trek episode. He, and I'm just learning this as I read his Wikipedia page, he also co-wrote the novel Logan's Run. And yeah, as well as several, skip, several scripts for The Twilight Zone. So um, Kick the Can is the only one on this list I recognize. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a good career, <laughs> if that's everything. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a fantastic script, for sure. Yeah, I just I want to very briefly circle around to something, uh, which uh, I think Kev, you mentioned earlier. You were talking about uh, Jean Ball and how good she is in this episode, um, which I want to uh, agree with because I completely do agree. But also looking at her um, her filmography, she's one of those actors that doesn't really seem to have done much she's done some genre stuff so there's uh there's the fugitive is in there uh, obviously star trek uh wagon train bonanza stuff like that just just basically genre pulp and that's it Her, she never really got a career as such she she she, she turned up and she, she did things like this she was a guest spot actor in, in like a handful of series you probably vaguely remember your dad watching on on the tube back in the 1970s or something you know um and that's that's all she ever did and that kind of i know that has its own slight slightly that tragedy is too strong right but it's it's a shame she's such a good performer in this and it's kind of a shame that she didn't really get more of a career out of it because I think she's really strong here. I think you can say, really see somebody who, again, is able to make more of a character than is, is necessary on the page. So I just kind of, I, I, I meant to mention that earlier. It slipped my mind. I just wanted to look back to it and make sure that I, I said it before the end of the episode. She's really great. I really, really enjoy her performance in this episode. Um, and I'm, I'm kind of sorry that she didn't go on to have a bigger career. Yeah, it's... I just want to say, like, her switching between the dark-haired wig and the gray-haired wig, and she sells both of those performances very well, <laughs> so they actually seems different and not just the wig switch. Uh, I, be yeah. I believe it's the third actress playing the blonde version of her, or second actress, I should say. That's how well it's convincing. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's uh, the older and younger versions, as people sort of perceive her, I think she does these little shifts in her performance that are noticeable enough to sort of distinguish them. And then while we're talking guest stars, uh, I just also like Alfred Ryder. He at least had seen more of a career than Jean Ball, Jean Ball, however you pronounce it. Um, but yeah, he's just, he's very fun. I think he's, it's almost kind of a funny presence when he's like trying to shoot at Kirk and Spock and like trying to <laughs> warn them away. It's a bit of a comic touch that scene from his performance that I really like. Um, but he also still sells all that tragedy stuff very well. If there's no more thoughts on Alfred Ryder, then I just have a couple other stray thoughts. We can just go around any sort of one-line ideas we have. Um, the 
the doomed uh, red shirt and a blue shirt and from the teaser of the episode mentions Wrigley's pleasure, pleasure plant, Wrigley's pleasure planet. And I am tickled if that was either a name pulled out of a hat or if uh, the writers were like, well, the gum company already owns a baseball stadium. Why wouldn't they own a pleasure planet in the future? <laughs> a great, either way, a great little bit of word world building there. And then uh, just another touch on DeForest Keller's performance I didn't get to when we were talking about it. I love him as the shapeshifter in the conference room scene because he has the energy of someone who is like asked to give a presentation they did not prepare for. When Kirk asks, what is the medical <laughs> diagnosis? And he's just sort of stumbling through his words. And it's, it's such a perfect uh, energy and mood. Like he captures that really well. I also love the way that Spock responds to that. He just looks at him and goes, fascinating hypothesis doctor <laughs> <laughs> he looks ever so slightly pleased like he's got away with it yeah <laughs> yeah well i guess the, the one stray thought i will add is sort of at the very beginning where we see nancy um for the first time you know she appears as you know uh essentially mccoy's ideal woman nancy of 25 years ago we see she appears to the um the dead crewman as sort of his ideal woman from the pleasure planet. And yet to, to Kirk, we see she appears as middle-aged Nancy. So um, what does that, whether that is telling us about uh, Kirk's, that that Kirk's ideal is the truth or whether that Kirk's ideal is a uh, 45 year old is a 45 year old, handsome woman. Yeah. I almost, my, theory on that is that that's what he was expecting which is that oh he she is mccoy's age so i expect to see an older woman but then the crewman just sees um, someone he was like let's say hanging out with on a pleasure planet so i i don't know what's up with that but yeah maybe he very, is very very politely phrased yeah <laughs> yeah it's not quite explained but i don't know it's one of the things where I don't need it to be explained. I think the emotion and the the, the effect it has on me works so well. Oh, absolutely! If you if we got into a nitpick corner on, on this podcast, you'd need another hour. Oh no, and I, I never want to do that. To be clear, <laughs> good. I I also do not want to do that. No, and that that's that wasn't what I was intending either. So. Oh yeah, no, all good. But yeah, I think I mean I think overall this is just a a terrific slice of sort of fifty minutes of of um sci-fi and it's it's one of those episodes where you really do understand why the show was able to garner the reputation that it did not just in retrospect but but during the 60s as well you know it had a real um you know it had a real reputation from the work go and this this episode is a, a perfect example it's it's well written it's thoughtful it's considered it's extremely well acted um and and the drama and the tragedy of it just work it's 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 really great. All right. I think that's the perfect summary we're going to get for uh, The Man Trap. So now we're going to pivot to our uh, corner on recommendations, non-Star Trek things we are watching or listening to, reading, or enjoying for they want to recommend to the audience. Um, well, I say non-Star Trek things, but JG, why don't you start and contradict me? Uh, yes, I will contradict you because the first thing I'm going to talk about is the, at time of recording, new, new uh, Star Trek series, Strange New Worlds. Um, which I adore. I'm really thoroughly enjoying it. And I'm saying that as uh, somebody who's only seen three episodes at this point. I realize more will have been broadcast by the time this episode actually posts. But as of now, three episodes have been done and it absolutely feels 
like it's capturing the spirit of the original show, but not just as a sort of piece of nostalgia bait or kind of, you know, comfort viewing for old fuddy-duddies like me who just want a bit of the old show but new. It feels like it manages to capture the spirit of the original and the energy of the original without it just being a kind of hollow reputation. Uh, Anson Mount as Captain Pike is just phenomenal. He's very much channeling a, a sort of Shatner energy, but Shatner as he is in the episode that we've just been discussing, it's that side of Shatner that tends to get forgotten when, you know, he was, he was a, a dashing charismatic, you know, actor back in the sixties. Like Kev, you said he wears command well, but he really does. Um, and that's exactly what uh, Anson Mount has as Pike. He is such a natural in that role. But every single character in uh, Strange New Worlds, it just just works. The ship has been redesigned, of course it has, because you can't just replicate the original. But it's done, I think, very respectfully. It's not the full kind of glossy, complete remake of the sort of 2009 movies. Uh, but there's more than enough to get a feel and a flavor of the original designs without it just being either a slavish copy or simply abandoning it for something else. So it's it's modern enough that it makes sense in a 21st century context, but it's not just this kind of uh, yeah slavish, slavish reproduction. It's a, it's a great show. It's terrific fun. It's just nice to watch a show like this, which isn't desperately self-serious uh, and, you know, capital D drama. It doesn't have uh, much in the way of serialization apart from sort of a, a little ongoing thread about uh, Pike's mortality. I'm sure we'll get a bit more serialization as, as we go on. But again, it that feels very resonant of the old show without simply, uh, without simply replicating it. So three episodes in, I'm absolutely uh, adoring it. I very much hope that it's going to uh, keep up its momentum. At the moment, it's not falling into the curse of the first season that almost every iteration of Star Trek has managed, you know, first season of Next Gen isn't very good, first season of DS9 isn't very good, first season of Voyager isn't very good, etc., etc. It, it's kind of managing to avoid that curse. I hope it's able to keep up its momentum. Uh, but that's my recommendation this week. Uh, Strange New Worlds, thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyable. Um, I'm also watching Strange New Worlds. I've only seen the first episode. Uh, I swear I'm not bringing this up just as a brag. Uh, the woman I'm see currently seeing, um, big Star Trek fan, and I think it's watching that first episode with her it's just very enlightening where she can be like oh that's spock's fiance oh you'll get to her later when you cover that episode on this podcast <laughs> or oh that is a christine chapel oh wow I, they brought her back and she's getting a lot out of it that way but i as just a new person i mean it still plays well to someone with the familiarity of star trek that merits doing a podcast about it it's uh, and to mount i really <laughs> love his performance um Ethan Peck as Spock. He's also doing a great job. I think the whole cast is outstanding. And that first episode had such a good story to it. Just a nuts and bolts, self-contained story that was very appealing. So yeah, I'm very invested in this uh, whole show. I think I'm very excited just to have Star Trek or no uh, episodic sci-fi space adventure television on TV again. That's not either continuity fanwank cough picard or um overly serialized the hugging learning and sharing show cough discovery i, I don't mean to be too hard <laughs> maybe too many charge discovery i have very mixed feelings with discovery these days <laughs> but strange new world is such a breath of fresh air 
yeah, it's it's nice to be able to watch an iteration of Star Trek which isn't um, hugs greater than than everything else, and that's that's the trap I think um, Discovery sometimes falls into. I mean, I I broadly don't mind Discovery, but I it it sometimes struggles to strike that balance. Um, but I think that's one of the things that Strange New Worlds does incredibly well. Yeah, and Dave, if you have thoughts on Strange New Worlds, feel free to chip in. Yeah, um, I have nothing to add to what you said. Same okay, thing. all good. Very, very enthusiastic and. Uh, enthusiasm instead of cautious optimism is is very nice for a change in a first season of a star trek well then why don't you get into uh what's what you've been into recently yeah very much so um well something uh contemporary on the uh, on the literature side of uh that would be contemporary to original series star trek um i'm going to recommend uh the anthology of new worlds magazine uh that's they've they've done several um i think the uh a lot of great uh sci-fi writers of the 1960s and 70s uh harlan ellison brian aldis both did uh or not not brian aldis uh, norman spinrad uh both did trek scripts um and the, i think the the absolute highlight i want to highlight is the uh is an, aside from just sci-fi stories is an essay called scolia seasoned with crabs blishes uh which you'll find in most of the new worlds worlds anthologies because it is just such a weird piece of literary criticism about the author james blish and um and james blish i I mentioned earlier in the podcast about uh you know he wrote story he wrote stories about uh the original series of star trek where at least in the case of this episode he just took the um the 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 45 minute episode and just boiled it down to its bones into just these 15 minute short stories which uh i know they're they have some fond reputations but uh spoiler alert uh if you if you pick up scolia seasoned with blish by uh it was uh who's the author of that one was um here it is sorry um but john clute uh, he he called the the Star Star Trek adaptations um, the worst anthology in the history of sci-fi. So, uh, <laughs> but uh, but absolutely the uh, an anthology of New World, some very some great stories from the late sixties to the early seventies, um, and, and as I said, some of the pe- some people who uh, wrote for Star Trek, some people who really did not like Star Trek. Uh, and some people who are very clearly uh, inspired by Star Trek as well. So that sounds fantastic. I'll look into it for sure. Yeah, and, then... and, uh, and if you're, I suppose, if you're looking for it on uh, Amazon or whatever preferred uh, book service, you'll want to look. For, it's edited by Michael Moorcock, so you'll find it under Moorcock's name. All right. Yeah, that's. I I I'm, I want to get more into sort of that classical Golden Age sci-fi, uh, trying to avoid the more problematic stuff. I guess you can't avoid problematicness entirely when you're getting into that. But um, yes, uh, yeah, it definitely sounds like a good starting point. Um, and then my recommendation for this episode is a film recommended to me first called A Hanover Street, a 1979 World War II sort of throwback romance. Uh, it stars Harrison Ford, like right off of Star Wars, and Leslie Ann Dowd as a... United States sort of Air Force man and uh, nurse in England who start up an affair 
and Dowd is married to Christopher Plummer, the other major actor in this film. And yeah, uh, they carry on this affair in secret. And then a sort of spy mission accidentally pits Ford and Plummer together behind enemy lines. It's got, there's just so much else going on in this movie. The production design is incredible. It's an 8 million budget, which even for 1979, it's, that's not a blockbuster. It's just, they stretch it so well. Uh, and they just do so many great things with it. There's some impressive sequences. And also, I mean, Ford himself, he's disowned the movie soon after it came out, unfortunately. Which I find fortunate because not only is it good, I think he is fantastic in it. As this very romantic side of him you don't usually see. Um, and I, Leslie Ann Dowd is also just brilliant, brilliant. And, and of course, Christopher Plummer. Um yeah, it, there's a lot of great dramatic ironies involved, you can imagine, from the premise, and a lot of just really solid writing and poetic dialogue. Yeah, it's just a really fun time. 109 minutes. I believe streamable somewhere. Let me look that up as I finish talking about it. But yeah, Hanover Tree. And it's just kind of this forgotten gem, which is, I mean, I guess it's not absurd it's forgotten. It did not make much money. Critics did not like it for whatever reason. Maybe just World War II wasn't trendy at the time of New Hollywood. I can definitely see that. But yeah, as sort of this Douglas Cirque-style throwback available on Prime Video and Tubi. So that's two things I think that are very readily accessible. I highly recommend Hanover Street. H-A-N-O-V-E-R. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Um, and I think we can probably wrap things up for there for now. Um, Kev, would you care to tell people how they can get in touch with us? We have an email address, talkingtrektoyou at gmail.com. We're on Twitter at TalkTrekToYou. I'm on Twitter at Kev Kozer, K-E-V-K-O-E-S-E-R. And you can find more of JG's writings at www.jgmcquarrie.scott, J-G-M-C-Q-U-A-R-R-I-E.scott. I frequently guest in the podcast Total Massacre about action movies, hosted by Rowan Kaiser, JG, and his, po- and his co-host Andrew Deacon, uh, host Beatles Stuffology, a podcast going through the Beatles track by track. And yes, please like, rate, review, subscribe to the podcast. Another podcast you're using, it helps other people find us. Fantastic. Thank you very much. And thank you, Dave, for joining us. Oh, thank you, JG and Kev, for having me. It was a oh. lot of fun. Oh, I'm glad you had fun. Yeah, it was great having you. Absolutely. Our pleasure. And I think we can probably leave the mantra there for now. Next week, we are going to be diving into Charlie X. Oh, great. Something to look forward to there. Um, I shouldn't really say that. Are you you implying that this might not be three for three for me? It might not be the resonant classic that you might be hoping for, Kev. I, I, I hope that's not going to ruin things for you too much. But I, I shall say no more. I shall hold my tongue and we shall cover it next week. So we hope you're going to join us for it. But until then, keep talking.